Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross and executed outside Jerusalem. And at about 3 p.m., just before he died, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, he's alone, abandoned, betrayed by his friends, surrounded by enemies, forsaken. And I think we understand that slightly. There's a universal human fear of abandonment, but this is really something else. Alone against enemies who want him dead and also forsaken by God, which should be the the deepest shock for us. Jesus, he is there on that cross because he was obedient to his father, because he trusted God, because he told the truth at his trial, because he refused to run away. But in fact, he is mocked by his murderers. They say, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. If he wants him. Such an idiot. He said he was God's king, God's son. Look at him now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But um, Aaron didn't read a New Testament account of Jesus' death tonight. He read from Psalm 22, and the first line of the psalm is the same. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what's going on? It means that Jesus' famous last words, they're not complaining. Um, He's not surprised. He's not um, even disappointed. He is quoting as he dies. He's quoting. He's quoting Psalm 22. Or um, say something stronger. He is reaching for something that he prepared much earlier. This is like the, the victim of a terrible crime when she stands on the steps outside the courtroom and has something to say, something so deep, so personal, that she wants to be sure to express the depth of it Right, and only to say what she really feels. So she reaches for a prepared statement. Let me tell you how I feel. We'll open in front of you tonight, Psalm 22. Here are the spirit-inspired words written by a predecessor king a thousand years before that really are the pre-prepared speech of the king on the cross written a thousand years before, ready to be quoted and lived. So Psalm 22 then is real. Jesus is describing his experience. Why have you forsaken me? That is what Jesus felt at 3 p.m. on that terrible April day. But he is also opening a door to understand his heart, his purpose, his achievement. So tonight, before we eat and drink to remember that death, I hope Psalm 22 will bring us to understand Jesus more deeply, to understand what he went through for us. That's going to be our first point, uh, is the king alone. But we will also see his victory, because God did want him. God did rescue him. That's going to be point two. He sees victory. God vindicated him for doing the right thing, the faithful thing, the king thing. 
And then we'll also see that he did the right thing for us. The solitary man, alone and forsaken, ends the psalm surrounded by people who he has gathered to God. That's point three. The king with his people, with his people. People from every nation in the world. So this psalm, it moves a a stunning distance. Alone and dying to rescued and alive to surrounded by people. The psalm moves from one of the most desperate emotional places ever all the way to a place of triumph and happiness. I I have no idea how David rationalized these words when he wrote them and sang them and taught them to others in 1000 BC. But when Jesus opens the envelope and reads the pre-prepared speech, we see his movement from death to life, from forsaken to victory, and we see it is for us to gather us to that same place of triumph and happiness. Is that what we're going to do tonight? Just listen to Jesus as he uses Psalm 22 to help us understand the cross. So first, the king alone, forsaken by God and people. And as you look at the psalm, the situation is terrible. I think different people here will tonight identify with different parts of this experience. But the the whole, it is uniquely his. So there are verse 1, verse 2, restless cries of anguish, day and night. Or verse 6, he is a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. Verse 11, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. And then verse 12 is is terrifying. His enemies, these are people, are like animals. They surround him like huge bulls or roaring lions, tearing, encircling, piercing. He He is alone against a mob and he is losing. Verse 14, poured out like water, you lay me in the dust of death. But actually the the situation is not the worst part. The worst part is about God. See, the the enemies, the enemies are just doing their thing. Uh, King David, he was used to that much of his life. It was David alone against the enemies with God on his side. But this time, verse 1, My God, my God, why are you so far from me? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? You do not answer. And David in the psalm, he takes the the sensible step that many of the psalms do. In normal times, this is a good thing to do. Look um, up from your situation and look at God. Verse 3, you are enthroned as the Holy One. God is on his throne. And David um, looks from his situation back to the lessons of the past. Verse 4, in you, our ancestors put their trust. And what happened? They trusted and you delivered them again and again and again. To you, verse 5, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. That's how it's supposed to work. Which is why in this case, looking up... And looking back makes it worse. Verse 6, but I am a worm, not a man. 
They were not put to shame, but he has all of the shame. Scorned, despised, they mock, they hurl insults. And what is it they mock him for? They mock him for trusting the Lord, verse 8. That's why they mock him. Let the Lord rescue him if he likes him so much, since he delights in him. So the, the psalmist, he tries again. He checks his heart. Have I really trusted in God? Have I really done that? Answer, verse 9 to 11. Yes. From birth, from his mother's milk, you have been my God's. Literally true in Jesus' case. Every minute of every day, trusting God. So why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is real. Jesus is describing to us his experience on the cross. It um, helps that detail after detail matches the events of Jesus' death precisely. I think um, you could have an emotional reality without that, have a poem about how it felt rather than what happened, but this is how it felt and what happened. Um, There are a couple of times in David's life that he might be drawing on for this, times when he fled for his life, apparently alone, when his enemies surrounded him to try and kill him. But verse 8, verse 8 is actually what they say a thousand years later in 33 AD in April, sometime before 3 p.m. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 43, for your notes if you want to look it up. Um, I've read it to you already. Isn't that stunning? The, the prepared statement that Jesus had ready in his pocket, written a thousand years earlier, it includes the precise words of his enemies, even as he hangs there. Just pause for a second. Think how difficult it would be to arrange that. His enemies, they do shake their heads and hurl insults. They do surround him like wild animals baying for the kill. Earlier that day, they did beat him and flog him and shove him from soldier to soldier until they pierced his hands and his feet, like verse 16. Before verse 18, they divided his clothes among them and cast lots for his garments. A stunning prediction of exactly what happened? If you, um, if you don't believe in God tonight, I'm delighted that you are here, but I do mean to give you a real headache tonight. Try controlling the precise details of your own execution by a foreign global superpower. Try doing that without being God's. But the, um, the prediction and the truth of it should not overpower the emotion and the meaning. I think sometimes we get so excited that it's true, we forget to feel it, and we forget what it means. They gamble for your clothes when you are naked and exposed and humiliated. And they only do that when they are sure that you will never need them again when it is the end of the road. And to be let down by a friend hurts. To be abandoned by all of the friends is unforgettable. To be betrayed by a friend is unsurvivable. 
Then you have the trauma of being the plaything of the animal mob. And all the while, the worst thing is what they can say about you, the shame and the mockery about God. Clearly, God doesn't delight in him, doesn't want him in Matthew's translation. Jesus, he is unlike everyone else who ever trusted in God. This one is forsaken by God. And the um, climax, the low point climax in the psalm, I think it's shocking but easy to miss. So verse 15, and ask who has done this? This abandoned, beaten, dying man, when he can hardly speak anymore, and my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Tell us who, who has done this? You lay me in the dust of death. The the king in the psalm dies, and uh, I wonder what on earth David made of that, writing about his own death. The king dies, and the king says, God did this, you did this, you lay me in the dust of death. So that is the, the low point, that's the sad place. And I've deliberately taken time for us to really hear it and feel it. This is how it felt for Jesus to die for me and for you. A real event with a real person. These are the prepared words that express it beautifully and tragically. But they, they come from a psalm that does not stop at death. So point two isn't going to need very much time, but the, the change, the difference is staggering. The king was alone. He was forsaken by God and his people. But from 19 onwards, the, um, the God bit changes. This is the king rescued by God. So verse 19, it's just the same prayer again. Be not far from me. It was despairing in verse 11. And then he died. Verse 15, you'd think that would be the end. But here it is again, verse 19. Then with increasing confidence, help me, deliver me, rescue me, save me. And verse 22 onwards is talking about a future. The thing that dead people don't normally have. This king, he will have something to declare in the future. I will declare your name to my people. He'll be in the assembly and praising God. Why? Because, verse 24, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one, but has listened to his cry for help. Bit late, you might think, David, after you've actually died. David must have thought, what is going on? But apparently not, because afterwards, after that, after death, in the happy half of the psalm, there is praise and vow-keeping and eating and feasting and serving the Lord. It's all the things that corpses don't normally do. And David, he he writes what the Spirit gave him to write. But he must have wondered, what, what does this mean? Resurrection from the dead? The idea is there in verse 29, look at that. The feasting, it is for those who cannot keep themselves alive, who go down to the dust, surely the same dust as verse 15, the dust of death. But in Jesus, there's there's no more confusion, no more wondering. In Jesus, we see the reality. Psalm 22, it describes how he feels, forsaken by God. But he is not complaining, and he is not surprised, and he is not disappointed. He is quoting He's quoting the sad beginning of the psalm and also the happy conclusion. He told them, after all, repeatedly, I will be killed, 
and after three days rise again, just like my psalm laid out in advance. He is vindicated. This is the one who God delights in. He wants him. He wants him so much he'll resurrect him from death. Jesus, he has done the right thing in dying. And uh, this, it's not just a, a narrow escape. Um, We're going to need Hebrews chapter 2 in just a second. We needed it last week. We'll need it in a bit. But um, Hebrews 2 quotes this psalm because we need to know that the one who died, he is now crowned with glory and honor because, listen to this, by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So this is the death that breaks the power of death. The king forsaken and alone, he is rescued by God through death. After death, he rises to indestructible life with death defeated and broken. And that, that is not just good for him. Point one, remember, the king was alone, forsaken by God and his people. After God raises him and vindicates him and crowns him, Well, point three, he is not alone anymore. He is surrounded by people. Point three, it's the king with his people. So verse 22, he is declaring God's name to his people. In the assembly, meaning the the great assembly of the tribes of Israel before their God. This is all of you, descendants of Jacob, verse 23. But even all the tribes of Israel is not enough. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember And turn to the Lord. Not just the family of Jacob, but it says all the families of the nations will bow down before him. That's where the the three Psalms we've had in the series so far, they begin to come together. Do you remember our first night, Psalm 2? When the nations of the world started a rebellion against God, all of them, they united against God, will overthrow him. And he laughed. He laughed at them. They're so small. He laughed because whatever we think or say, he is ruler over the whole world. Not just Israel, not just the people who believe in him. Well, Verse 28 here is the same idea. Dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. And in Psalm 2, his answer was to put a king on a throne. A king who is a son, a David king. And we learn then that resurrection day is coronation day for Jesus. Jesus is that king of the whole world. Then last week, last week was Psalm 8. We saw that Jesus, he's not just some kind of strange plan B. It's not a parachuted solution to a difficult world. The king on the throne solution, that is actually Genesis 1. It's going back to how the creation was meant to be, the way human beings were meant to be. Always the plan has been for a human being ruling over the world. Do you remember last week how badly we ruined it? And how generously in Jesus, God arranges for a human being to do it perfectly, do what we couldn't. And then the wonderful, wonderful idea last week that he would invite us back, come and share the throne, come and move back into the house that we had ruined. So it's a whole world rebellion. It's a whole creation under one human being. And then Psalm 22 tells us the death of that king is what makes that possible. Jesus, he's not just perfect, obedient son who trusts God and does everything right. 
He is also the one in the psalm. He is mistreated, forsaken, punished, and killed. He does what we should have done, and yet he carries what we deserved. So the the New Testament provides the, the missing because in Psalm 22. It is because the king was right but forsaken. It is because of his death that he can gather people from all over the world, even those who die, to praise his God forever. The answer to a world rebellion and a creation-wide failure is 3 p.m. April 2,000 years ago. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So open Hebrews 2. Turn to it if you haven't. And uh, you can read this later yourselves for more detail. I just want you to see how Hebrews 2 combines last week's psalm and this week's psalm. So um, verse 6, 7, and 8, that is Psalm 8. We need a true and perfect human being who can rule over everything. Then verse 12 is Psalm 22. It's our psalm tonight. We need a king who will assemble his brothers and sisters. He's the only perfect one, the only human being with a future and a life expectancy, the only one not under the power of death. But Psalm 22, he plans to share that with you. He plans to share that with brothers and sisters from all over the world. So how could he do that? Well, he does it because of his death, Hebrews says. Verse 8 to 11, they say Jesus suffered death on our behalf. Uh, Look at the end of verse 9, so that he might taste death for everyone. And verse 10, that is how he can bring many sons and daughters to glory. He suffered alone so that he could triumph in company. He makes himself like us, human like us, so he could die. Takes on our shame so that verse 11 He can say that we are one family and he is not ashamed to call them, to call us brothers and sisters. Isn't that an astonishing thing? Jesus looks at you and me and says, I'm not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So the application of this psalm, um, in the psalm it is to gather around him, to join him in the assembly to join him praising God. And in Hebrews 2, since you've got that open, the application is to be free of the fear of death. Verse 15. See, the the sad words of the psalm, they are often ours. In all of the, the normal trials and disappointments of life, we may very often feel like that first half of the psalm. And we can ask, where are you, God? But in the final great trial the one with death himself. In that one, well, Jesus was forsaken so that we are not, never need to be. He was pierced and he was mocked and he was shamed so that we are not and never will be. He lay in the dust of death so that those who cannot keep themselves alive will feast and worship. 